This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Good morning, agents. Welcome to The Briefing Room here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the Showtime series Homeland. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my executive co-director, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. We are also joined by a special guest, Charlie's cat, Chester. How are you doing, Chester? He's licking his butt. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he's doing. (laughs) Well, hello to you too, Chester. Today we'll be discussing episode two of season three of Homeland. The episode is titled Uh-Oh-Ah. It was written by Chip Johannesson, and it was directed by Leslie Linka-Gladder. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you haven't seen this episode of the show, you should go away, catch up on Homeland, and then come back. Charlie, why don't you remind our listeners what happened on this episode? This is the official synopsis from Showtime.com. Saul attempts to track down those responsible for the Langley attack, recruiting an unlikely expert to follow the money trail. Quinn, troubled by the collateral damage from a recent mission, tries to take matters into his own hands. An embattled Carrie learns who is really on her side, and the Brody family turns to therapy to mend their broken household. Here's a clip. Hello, Frank. What are you doing here? Yeah. Why are you here? Uh, Look, I, uh, I understand you're angry. Hey, skip the phony sympathy. What do you want? I know both of you hate me right now, but I'm on her side. I am. Doesn't change the fact that the way she's carrying on, she's her own worst enemy. You need to rein her in. She can't be running to a reporter every time she gets upset. Is that what she did? What, she didn't even mention it to you? No. What would you expect her to do, not even fight back? She's not fighting back. She's making herself a target. Agency runs on secrecy. There are people who want her indicted on criminal charges. So you're threatening us? I'm telling you the truth. Best thing you can do for Carrie right now is convince her to stay inside. You mean the psych ward? I mean out of sight, someplace she can level out. You know she's off her meds, right? Unless you think that's a good idea. You really have to help me. As always, if you like the show, you can email us at briefingroom.com and let us know what you thought of Uh-Oh-Ah. Charlie, <laughs> let's dive into this episode. First of all, it was written by our good friend, Chip Johannesson, who you may remember as the showrunner for season five of Dexter. Oh, really? Yes, yes. His writing has improved significantly. <laughs> well, I have a theory about Dexter, Charlie, because... I was I was reading back about Chip Johannesson and Scott Buck, and I realized, you know, Scott Buck was a writer on Dexter for the first few seasons, and then he became showrunner for season six, and I believe Chip Johannesson did some writing for Dexter as well before season five. So my conclusion is just that Showtime should stop promoting writers to showrunners. Yeah, they're they're corrupt with power after a while, and they destroy their own shows, as Scott Buck did to our beloved Dexter. Yes, but this was a pretty well-written episode of Homeland, I thought, and I I enjoyed it overall. What did you think? 
I enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a very strong uh, episode. I thought there were a lot of interesting parallels between certain characters, mainly um, Carrie and Dana. Both of them are struggling with mental illness in this episode, and they're both being surrounded by authoritarian figures who believe that they're crazy and that they see the proper way to deal with something, while Carrie and Dana are the only ones who believe that they're getting the whole story that they uh, see the entire picture as to what is going on. And I found their parallel in particular to be really fascinating. Well, there's one main difference between the two of them, and that is that Carrie actually is mentally ill. (laughs) And (laughs) arguably, she's hurting herself. I'm not sure the same could be said about Dana Brody. Yeah, but Dana, I mean, like the doctor said in the last episode, it was clear that she was trying to kill herself, and then she clarifies that here. So she clearly was mentally ill and the only responsible way to treat someone who has attempted suicide is to assume that there's something related to mental illness going on and transfer them to a psychiatric ward. Mental illness makes it sound like they're insane, but definitely depression is a factor. Maybe you perceive the term mental illness in a more negative view than I do, because I didn't mean for that to sound condescending to their characters. I just mean that it's something they struggle with. Well, here's the difference between their two characters right now. Dana Brody has been through therapy. She's taken her meds, so to speak. So she seems overall healthier than Carrie right now, even though in this episode she does have a little bit of a breakdown. Carrie is still in denial about the fact that she needs help. I definitely agree with that. And it's interesting because the way Dana is recovering is almost, it's kind of similar to the way that Carrie was recovering in the beginning of season two. And now Carrie is back to her manic bipolar traits that ultimately destroy her. I, I mean, I don't think they're exactly the same. I think that as shown by you know, what happens at the end of this episode, that Dana ultimately triumphs over the people who are telling her that she's doing everything wrong, and she ultimately stands up for herself and convinces her mother that she's not crazy, that Brody's crazy, and him being crazy destroyed their lives. While Carrie is still in a hospital and is injected with drugs to the point where she can barely even talk. So where Dana sort of uh, comes out on top in her situation, Carrie could not sink any lower. I think this is the lowest we've ever seen Carrie fall. Like, even in season one after she lost her job, like, she was uh, willing to accept electroshock therapy. She wanted to get better. She wanted to accept treatment. And here she's just so hostile and so uh, resentful to get any sort of help. What I also find to be interesting is that Dana is finding happiness and wanting to live again for someone that she loves, Leo, who uh, is still in the psychiatric ward. And Carrie is fighting for the person that she loves, but the person that she loves is ultimately driving her even more crazy, whereas Dana's uh, significant other is helping her recover, which I find to be interesting. Right, and that whole idea of craziness and who's crazy and who's not crazy, who understands the truth and, and who is in denial... That's a really heavy theme in this episode because, as you mentioned, people thought Carrie was crazy in season one and it turned out she wasn't. She was right. Jessica thought that Dana was a little bit crazy or perhaps just doing a, giving a cry for help in the last episode. And now Dana reveals that no, she wasn't. That's not the case at all. And uh, everyone seems to think that Brody is the crazy one, that Brody's the one that blew up a bunch of people. But we know that he's not crazy. Yeah. He didn't do it. So I like how the show is constantly playing with these themes 
and returning to them where it seems like it's very easy at times to label someone as quote-unquote crazy when maybe they aren't. Mm-hmm. Except Carrie in this episode, as you mentioned, yeah, she, she this is definitely the farthest she's fallen. And that's the first topic I really want to talk about. She's destroying herself. She's not taking her meds. She's clearly manic. But she also just wants to reveal the truth. She wants to stop being targeted by the CIA. She doesn't want to be thrown under the bus. When you're watching this, Charlie, who do you think is right? Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, what I love about this show is I totally understand where Saul's coming from and I totally understand where Carrie's coming from because I think that if Carrie reveals secrets about the, the CIA that they don't want getting out, that's ultimately the right thing to do. But her idea of not being targeted anymore is to reveal these secrets about the CIA, which will ultimately go out into the press and then make her a target for terrorists anyway. And it will also have the CIA targeting her even more. And I do believe that Saul believes he's doing the right thing, but he's slowly turning into David Estes, I believe. Like, I feel like if David Estes was still in charge, I feel like Saul might be opposed to this and might still be uh, defending Carrie. But with everyone looking over his shoulder and uh, him being put under so much pressure, I totally understand why he's doing this. At the same time, it's so painful because Saul's been almost like a surrogate father to Carrie, and now he's completely betrayed her. And some reviews have stated that there is some ambiguity as to whether Saul really cares or not. I think he cares. I just think that he's torn between his job and the people he loves, like I mentioned uh, a million times in both of our previous episodes. And I feel like Saul's definitely going to stand up for himself and not let people walk all over him in the next episode after seeing the horrible state that Carrie has been left in. But is it that horrible, though? Because she's getting meds at the end of the episode. Yeah, it, what, what was interesting to me is that, and maybe it's just because it's through Carrie's perspective, but that scene, uh, the one, one of the few quibbles I have about this episode is the scene where they're uh, injecting the meds into her. They made the doctors out to be so villainous as if it was terrible that she's getting on her meds. And it kind of felt like um, the climactic uh, sequence uh, where Ellen Burstyn's in rehab and the end of Requiem for a Dream. Like, literally, I think there's even a shot where it fades out. Like, the shot loses focus and fades out, which I think happens in Requiem for a Dream, too. And there's all these close-ups, and she's squirming, and she's uh, struggling, and she's moaning. The one thing that got rid of a little bit of moral ambiguity there was it made it seem as if these doctors were just a little too cartoonishly mean. Well, the thing is, that's how she sees them. Yeah. So it is from her perspective, and maybe that's what they were trying to get at. But the tone of the music and the way it's shot made it seem as if... That was the one thing where I was like, are the showrunners trying to get me to think that this is a bad thing, or is this just from Carrie's perspective? But maybe that's not a bad thing if I'm thinking about it that way. Like, if, it, if it's starting this conversation as to whether or not this is a good or bad thing between uh, that we're having right now, then maybe that isn't something I should quibble about. Well, what I think is interesting about this episode is that it's it's touching on all of these real-life events and, and, and these real-life concerns that we have about secrecy and about whistleblowers in particular. You know, whether it's uh, Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden, you know, there, there's a lot of debate going on nowadays about the role of whistleblowers, whether or not it's appropriate to reveal government secrets. And normally, I'm all for that. Charlie. 
and I tend to to side with the little guy sticking up against the government. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this episode of Homeland, though, is that Carrie, I think, could be seen as heroic in a certain context because she's trying to go to the press. She's trying to reveal the truth. She wants people to know the truth, and I think that that is a valiant goal. The issue is she is ill. She's not thinking rationally, and her actions as a result may end up hurting people more than helping them. And by the end of this episode, I was not on her side at all. I was very much on the side of, oh, yes, Saul, Dara Dahl, you're right. She needs help. I mean, I don't like the fact that Saul threw her under the bus, but she needs to be medicated before she can think rationally. Maybe I would feel completely differently if uh, Carrie was going to this reporter completely rational. Mm -hmm. But she's not. So... That, I think, automatically undermines a lot of her credibility. By the end of the episode, I was kind of like, all right, CIA, you do what you got to do. You can't let this secret get out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it is important for people to know the truth. But at the same time, I I agree with you. I mean, she is not calm in a single scene of this episode. She's consistently yelling at people. She's fidgeting. She's interrupting people. She, like, goes into the interview, and she's like, okay, we can start recording. And she's like, yeah, I see the little red light there. I see the little red light there. Like, yeah, I can tell it's recording. Okay, let's go. And then she's very hostile to everyone, and she keeps yelling about how everything is bullshit. I think that if there was a drinking game for this episode, it would be every time Carrie says this is bullshit, uh, you'd be wasted by the end of this episode. I'm Nicole Hong, here with... Carrie Matheson. You've been with the CIA 14 years. You told me you had a falling out recently. No, what I said was I'm under attack. A week ago, you published a story that an unnamed CIA officer was in a romantic relationship with the Langley bomber. And is that officer you? No, you're missing the point. No one at the CIA was in a relationship with the Langley bomber. Okay, wait. According to my source... The CIA? I can't confirm that. No. Well, I don't know what kind of conversation you expect to have here if you won't acknowledge the f***ing obvious. The CIA gave you that story to set me up. For what? The big lie. Now, despite what they said, Nicholas Brody is not responsible for the explosion at Langley. And you can prove this. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Did Saul Berenson know when he testified before the Senate subcommittee? Of course he did. Everything he said was Now, I'm not the one who got it wrong. I'm the only one who got it right. And then for the longest time, I couldn't get anyone at the CIA to believe me. Did you tell anyone that I was coming here? Just my editor. Just your editor? Saw. Carrie Matheson, DC Metro. You need to come with us. <laughs> what, three of you? You think that's enough? Standard procedure, ma'am. Yeah, for, for what? what? What sort of charges did they make up? There's no charges, ma'am. We've got a psychiatric detention order. Do you understand what that is? Well, the other interesting thing is that, you know, she's trying to blame the CIA for everything. And the CIA, in turn, is trying to blame it all on her. But the truth is far more gray. And the, and, and the truth is they both did some things right. They both did some things wrong. I mean, Carrie probably should not have slept with Brody. That oh, yeah, automatically undermines her credibility. 
at the same time, she was right about him being a terrorist, and the CIA did try to use him as an asset before this all blew up in their face, literally. So they both acted in what they thought was the country's best interests, but it still backfired on them. So that is where things get particularly tricky, because it's really hard to blame either of them. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about it is that it's all gray. There's no black or white characters. I guess that at the end, I was still on Carrie's side, maybe because it, they showed it through her perspective of, you know, it being such a seemingly terrifying hospital where they like strap her down and they inject her and she's, you know, struggling. And then she's so numbed out and so out of it that she can barely even talk. And Saul approaches her saying, I'm so sorry. That got me back on Team Carrie because she seemed like she shouldn't have been that drugged up. At least that's what I took away from it is that, like, they didn't just drug her up. They drugged her up to the point of being, like, brain dead. Well, it's possible that that wasn't even caused by her bipolar medication. That could have just been a sedative that they gave her because she was so wound up and she was so antagonistic towards them that they had to sedate her. Um, And and that is interesting because, you know, season one ended with her voluntarily getting electroshock therapy and recognizing I need to be on my medication. Even if I'm right, I need to be able to state my ideas rationally and clearly. And here, yeah, she's getting her meds, but it's not voluntarily. And I'm wondering if that is going to affect how effective the treatment is, if we're going to spend a good deal of the season seeing her continue to struggle with whether or not she should take her medication. Because if if she doesn't want to, then that could be problematic down the road. And I definitely think she should take her medication because... She's been nothing but condescending and argumentative with every single character that she's interacted with, including in the first episode. Like, she's been very aggressive and very angry and goes in with this attitude of, I'm the only one who knows the truth and no one will listen to me, so I just need to, you know, scream at them until they recognize how right I am because the last time no one believed me and this time I'm not going to let that happen again. And that's why it felt so brutal for me this time is because she's already been down a similar road once. And now it feels like that comeback that she made in the second season, it ultimately brought her to an even worse place. I still sympathize with her. I I do get frustrated with her at times. Like she could have done a little more to try and restrain herself from basically having a temper tantrum. But based off of everything that her character's been through and the fact that no one would listen to her for most of the first season... I can understand why she acts that way. Right. And she refers to, in this episode, what she calls the big lie. And the big lie is just this conspiracy that the CIA has to cover up the fact that Brody was actually not responsible for the bombing at Langley and that he was a potential terrorist. What's interesting is that here she is, she she wants to reveal the big lie, but Everyone in her life, whether it's Saul, her parents, everyone she, she loves and respects is telling her, do not do this, do not do this, this is not the way to go about it, yet she still refuses to listen. And it all stems from the fact that she blames herself, she hates herself. Every major decision Carrie makes throughout the series is due to her being unable to accept the fact that she can make a mistake. At the end of season one, she went into electroshock therapy because she thought she was wrong about Brody. Here, 
She refuses to take her meds because she blames herself for missing a piece of evidence that could have revealed that the Langley bombing was allowed to happen. And it's been implied throughout the course of the series that she perhaps also blames herself for 9-11, for missing something that that led to 9-11. So everything she does comes from a place of very, very low self-esteem and self-loathing. And that is interesting to me because sometimes that self-loathing is warranted. Like, yes, you really did screw up and you need to deal with that. But more often it's the case that she didn't screw up. She just mm-hmm. views herself. She, there's so much, she, she pressures herself to be the superhero, to be the person that's going to stop every terrorist attack and get it all right. Which is what I like about her so much. The second season, after she received electroshock therapy, she was so harsh on herself. And she was unable to let herself off the hook. And then when she found out that she was right, I think that really changed her. And while I still think that the character still suffers from low self-esteem and an inferiority complex and everything that she does is the result of, I have to be this superhero even if I don't have faith in myself because it's the right thing to do. I think that it's kind of gone to her head a little bit now that since she was right, she doesn't want to have those feelings anymore of self-loathing and she's doing everything in her power to keep uh, standing up and for herself and uh, to fight back. And that's what made her state at the end of this episode really, really sad for me was that no matter how hard she tried here, she's been downgraded into the worst state that she's been in for the entire show. Right. And just to segue into an, another topic, I mentioned earlier just about how it, it, it's all about people wanting to reveal the truth. We know what really happened. How do we use this information in the best way possible? What's the, what's the best course of action now? And we see that play out in this episode with a new character, uh, Farah Shirazi, played by Nazanin Boniadi who is a new analyst working for the CIA. She's only been working there eight days. Saul brings her in to follow the money, and she connects the Langley bombing to a bank that deals out of the Middle East, and there's a big meeting, and she basically calls out the CEO of this bank and says, no, 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 no more BS. We know the truth. Your whole business model is based around terrorism, and financing illegal activity around the world. And it's this kind of heroic moment where I wanted to stand up and cheer and be like, yeah, you tell him, Farah, <laughs> you know the truth. So she gives this big, this big speech, and then it ultimately leads nowhere. He just shuts her down like, no, you shouldn't talk to me that way. This meeting's over. And it just makes you realize that the world of politics is is really messed up because you can know that someone in a position of power is corrupt and is doing horrible things, but in order to take them down, you still have to be polite to them and you still have to pretend like you're not really going to acknowledge the full scope of it. Yeah, and it's also, you know, sexism clearly runs through uh, the CIA as well. I mean... This whole episode's about Carrie and uh, Farah being slammed by the CIA, and they're very strong female characters who are doing everything in their power to get the truth out and to have it mean something, and they're consistently being pushed off to the side because a man is always in charge in front of them. So I find that to be interesting, too. 
Well, there's a moment in this episode where Saul kind of makes a very Islamophobic remark towards Peter. Yeah. And is like, you know, you show up here, you're wearing your headscarf, it's insulting to the people that died here, so you better be the best analyst I've ever seen. And I was just thinking, okay, is that how Saul really feels? Or is he saying that to motivate her? What was your take on that whole thing? If it wasn't how he really felt and it was to motivate her, then I think the scene is great. If he really felt it, I feel like that felt a little tacked on for Saul. I thought that would have been much better if it came from Dara Dahl. Like, I feel like that was something that Dara Dahl would say to Farah, but I didn't really feel like that would come from Saul. So if he really did feel that, and we were supposed to assume that Saul was meaning those horrible things that he was saying, I think it was a little tacked on and a little far-fetched. At the same time, the actress who plays Farah, uh, Nazarene uh, Boignadi, the reaction shots that she has uh, were so effective that the scene did end up working for me, and I thought it was very effective despite the fact that I wasn't sure that Saul would actually be saying this and meaning it. Well, I agree with you. It feels out of character for Saul. Are we just supposed to take that as bad writing, or is this a sign that, as you mentioned, Saul is under such increased pressure? He's he's struggling to deal with Carrie and with the Langley bombing and with, with all this stuff on his plate that now he is becoming more like David Estes. He is having to become a bit more hard-edged a bit more condescending and insulting at times just because he's under so much pressure and he wants to be effective. Yeah, I mean, it was effective. She did her job really well afterwards, but it seemed like she was doing her job really well beforehand, too. I mean, they brought her on to do this task, and she'd only been working for them for, like, eight days, so I assume that she was good at her job from the get-go. Another reason why uh, that scene bothered me a little bit, if Saul really felt it, was, you know, his relationship with Mira, what race is Mira again? Is she Indian? Is she Middle Eastern? I'm I'm sorry. Well, didn't she want to go to India in season one or season two? Isn't that where she left him briefly to go work? Yeah, no, she definitely did. It's just hard for me to believe that Saul would be racist towards Farah since he's in a relationship with Mira and Mira is of a different race. If this was just Saul attempting to motivate Farah, I feel like they could have thrown in a little bit of dialogue as to him saying, I didn't mean that, that was just to get her going. But since there wasn't any hint of that, I just took it on face value and thought, why is Saul being so racist right now? As tacked on as it did feel for me, it, it, it did make Farah's confrontation with the uh, CEO members of the bank to be all the more triumphant. If the scene where Saul was being racist to her was absent, I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten as much of an uplifting feel from that scene as I did. Right, which makes it even sadder when she's ultimately shut down. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I do like how this new character, Farah, I like how they're opening up more of this grander terrorist conspiracy because, okay, Abu Nazir's gone. We no longer have him mm-hmm. as a primary villain for the show. So now they've moved on to another terrorist cell led by another guy whose name I can't remember right now. It's the magician, isn't it? Yes, the magician. All we know now is that in dealing with this bank, a large sum of money has basically vanished and nobody knows where it went. So that's going to be the key to tracking them down. I think that this is interesting. It's not as action-packed as some of the other plot lines involving terrorism we've seen in the show, but it feels a little bit more 
realistic to me. Like, yes, if we want to make progress in an investigation like that, we have to do research, we have to track down all this data, financial records, we have to put it all together, and it's going to be some little thing that we find that's going to lead us in the right direction. Yeah, and I feel like because the show's taking a more realistic approach, that when action eventually does occur in this season, that it will probably feel very well earned because we've had so much effective buildup. And while it's more realistic and not as action-packed, it's never badly paced. This It's really engrossing. I never was bored during this episode. I thought it all moved really well. I thought that the way they uh, interweave every uh, plot line, I thought, was effective. Everything is moving forward. You know, like, each subplot or plot line ends in a different place than it began this episode. It's not like season eight of Dexter, which we did, where by the end of every episode, it was basically like, what is that up, that up to? Nothing. Like, every character is in a crucial and very different place from where they started off in. Right, which leads me to the next topic I want to talk about. Quinn. Quinn says he's going to resign, that he's kind of fed up with everything. He doesn't like how the agency is going after Carrie. He feels guilty for shooting this kid. So he clearly has mixed feelings about his job, but he also is still effective. He basically intimidates the CEO of this bank to hand over his records after Farah fails with the truth, which I thought was a really interesting scene. Because, again, this episode is constantly questioning assumptions and values that I normally have. Like, normally, I would just say, hey, just use diplomacy and talking and espionage (laughs) to get what you need. And they try that in this episode, and it doesn't work. So Quinn has to come along and basically say, well, do it or I'll kill you. Yeah. Going back real quick to uh, what we were just talking about with the large sum of money, I believe it was $46 million or something like that that was missing. And Saul says, hey, uh, Farah, let's just keep this between us, okay? I feel like Quinn's going to find out about it, and uh, that's going to end up resulting in Quinn maybe backstabbing Saul, because it's clear that Quinn doesn't want to play by anybody else's rules except his own. Well, I'm not sure yet why Saul wants to keep that between him and and Farah, because you would think that Quinn or Daradal or someone else might be able to help them uncover what what's really going on here. Is it that he doesn't trust the people in the agency? I wasn't quite clear on why Saul would want to keep that a secret. I wasn't either, but I found that to be kind of interesting. It wasn't frustrating to me. It was just, it's because Saul's going down such a dark path. Now that Saul's keeping a secret, that's probably going to backfire against him because he, look at everyone else who's kept secrets uh, around him and look at uh, what a bad state they're ending up in. So I just hope it's not some insane plot twist that Saul's been evil the entire time. That's all I hope it doesn't go down (laughs) to. Well, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I kind of feel like Quinn at this point is the most sympathetic character. He's the one that seems like he's got his head on straight. He knows what he wants. He knows what his ethics are. He know he has his limits as to what he'll do. And it's interesting because he seems very hesitant to kill in certain situations or to take certain actions that he doesn't agree with. But If he's placed in a position where he has to do that, he will often strike back with that same action. Like, he'll be like, well, no, I don't really want to kill Brody, but hey, Estes, I'll kill you if you try to make me or if you get someone else to do it. Yeah, he's kind of a wild card. 
Yeah, I kind of like him, though, because he he knows what he wants, and he's willing to say no and back off and not give in to the institutional pressure. He's still pretty threatening. Like, even though I agree with you, I find him to be very sympathetic. I find when he threatens certain characters, I do find that to be a little menacing. And, you know, we've seen sides of him where he explodes into violence. He almost seems like a little bit like Ryan Gosling's character from Drive meets, like, Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction or something with a more moral code. He keeps his mouth shut when uh, he needs to. And then, uh, you know, when the time comes where he needs to speak out about what he believes to be right or wrong, he says it. And then we know that he's capable of bursting out into vicious forms of violence at times. So and, you know, he killed the kid that he and he's still feeling bad about that. And I'm sure that that subplot isn't entirely wrapped up because I feel like that accident is going to haunt him for at least half of this season, if not more. Right. But see, unlike Carrie who takes her guilt and becomes very self-destructive. Quinn understands, yes, I did this. I feel guilty about it. So I'm going to do what I have to do now. And then when that's done, I'm going to leave and figure all this out on my own. Mm-hmm. And he seems he seems like he's very capable of compartmentalizing certain sides of himself that he needs to compartmentalize until more appropriate times. And if you recall, in season two... It was revealed that he had worked under Dara Dahl originally, right? Yes. I'm wondering if he gets this personality from Dara Dahl, because I get the impression that Dara Dahl is very much, he's got what he thinks about what he what needs to be done, and he will do it the way he wants to do it. I think the difference is Dara Dahl might not necessarily have the same moral limitations that Quinn does. Dara Dahl just sees it as a business. Like, he doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, I I think Quinn has that sort of straight-shooting, get-it-done philosophy of Dara Dahl, but he also has a conscience. Yeah, he seems like, that's why I said he kind of reminded me of Mr. Wolf, because he's like, we got to get this job done. You know, like, they they brought him in to fix things in season two, and uh, then he took matters into his own hands, and he fights back against actions that he finds to be immoral, but at the same time, he uses violence for his advantage as well. Well, he knows that people want to use him for his skills, and for the fact that he can be violent, that he can go in undercover, get the job done, be this very dangerous, secretive guy. But if he doesn't want to do that, he will use those same skills against people. So he, mm-hmm. I feel like he understands who he is, he understands what makes him valuable, and what makes him intimidating, and he's able to use that to his advantage. Absolutely. And I totally understood why Carrie didn't want to talk to him because she thought that Saul brought him in. And honestly, that's a completely understandable reason to not want to talk to him. But I did get upset that he barely got a word in with Carrie uh, because I feel like he could have helped Carrie in that situation. And she basically just uh, screamed until she got attention from uh, one of the security guards to kick him out. Yeah, I was totally unsympathetic with Carrie in that scene. This whole episode, she just is shutting people out who want to help her and really do have her best interests at heart. But she's so paranoid and she's so mad- manic, she, she's just refusing to see it. But moving on, the last topic I want to touch on is probably the most controversial one of the series, and that is Dana Brody. People <laughs> hate Dana Brody, and I do not understand why, but a lot of critics hate her. It seems like a lot of fans can't stand her. 
And in this episode, she ha- she gets a lot of screen time. She has a little arc where she runs away and has sex with Leo and then gives this big speech about how she really did want to kill herself, but now she doesn't anymore. And there have been some complaints that the writing was particularly bad with her this week. What did you think of the Dana Brody subplot? I mean, we've seen this type of story before about a teenage girl and uh, who feels that the world doesn't understand her and is suicidal and feels that the world is up against her. I'm not crazy, it's just the world around me is crazy. But it did work for me, mainly because of Morgan Saylor's performance. And, you know, it's 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 familiar territory and it kind of feels like a little out of place with what everything, uh, compared to everything else going on here. But I did like, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like it's, in, in her character has an interesting parallel to Carrie, where she's basically in the same situation where people are keeping uh, them from the person that they love that they're not really crazy, but the whole world thinks that they are. And I thought that that scene at the end with her telling Jessica that she just wants to be alive, we've seen scenes like this before, but I thought that Morgan Saylor did such a good job, and so did, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the actress who plays Jessica's name. Marina Baccarin. Yeah, I thought she was uh, fantastic as well. And it, it felt fitting, and it was a nice contrast to at least see one of these characters who's struggling with these problems to at least come out on top and earn sympathy from the people who she feels are against her. And it's even more painful to see Carrie drugged up at the end after we see Dana convince her mother that she's not crazy, it's just that her dad is crazy, which isn't entirely true, but he did hurt them, and his actions are what has driven the Brody family to such extreme feelings of betrayal and angst and depression and uh, sadness and fear. I thought it was really effective. Sure, maybe it was a little corny that she declares that her love for a boy is the reason that she wants to be alive, but... You know, a lot of teenage girls uh, say that, you know, like a lot of teenage girls who are in their first relationship or however, whatever type of relationship they are there in, when you're at that age and the world seems so frightening to you and you find one person to relate to you that doesn't think you're crazy. I feel like that's something a lot of teenage girls struggle with and it felt very authentic to me. It didn't feel tacked on. Right. As we talked about last week, Leo does understand her in a way that nobody else really does right now. And, you know, I'd have to go back and rewatch the scene. I didn't find the writing to be very over the top or very poorly written at all in this episode. Maybe it's just the strength of Morgan Saylor's performance, but I thought that final confrontation with Jessica was really well done. And the truth is, yeah, when people reach a breaking point, eventually they do just come out and say exactly what they feel. And that seemed realistic to me, that she would finally just lay it all out there and be like, hey, mom, this is how I feel. This is why I did what I did. Just deal with it. So yeah, it was heavy handed, but it was meant to be heavy handed. It was meant to just really get the point across to Jessica. This is what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is my life. This is how I'm living it. So I don't really think it's fair to criticize the writing or the subplot for being melodramatic or or heavy handed. I do think that this relationship with Leo, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Because yes, as you mentioned earlier, Charlie, her connection with Leo is very similar to Carrie's connection with Brody. And these are both situations where these men mean a very lot to these women. And if Leo, if something happens with with Leo 
and he breaks up with her or he doesn't want to be with her anymore or they can't be together. The question is, if she relies on him so much for her happiness, will that send her into another period of depression? Mm-hmm. I did find it to be interesting that she never mentioned Finn because Finn died at the end of season two. He was a victim in the Langley bombing. Maybe she just talked about it in therapy and we don't need to see it anymore. And yeah, Leo's not the most developed character. I mean, we've gotten, what, three scenes with him. But once again, you know, Morgan Saylor really convinced me that, you know, this boy really means a lot to her. And he seems like a nice enough guy. So I I, I agree with you. I think that it's going to be interesting because there's been no Brody for the past two episodes. So he's coming back soon, I assume, because Damian Lewis has been in all the advertisements. I feel like Dana finally coming to terms with what she did and realizing now that she wants to be alive and that she's going to be in this better place, stuff's going to come crashing down again when Brody re-enters the picture. Maybe he'll be off to the side somewhere in hiding. Uh, I don't know. But I feel like that and uh, Leo dumping her could send her into a downward spiral. Well, here's the thing. All the men in her life have let her down at one point or another. Yeah. Okay. Brody is a she thinks is a terrorist. Mike, we don't know where Mike is. And he was someone that she could rely on a lot. And we're not sure where he's gone exactly. Finn let her down in season two with the whole hit and run thing. And now he's gone. But Leo hasn't done anything to make her doubt him yet. So it'll be interesting to see if he ever does or if she's right. And maybe they really are kind of perfect for each other because they're both damaged and they've both been let down by other people in their lives. So overall, I'm still invested in the Dana storyline. I don't understand all the Dana hatred. I honestly think there might be a little bit of sexism inherent in some of the complaints. Uh, I did read a few internet commenters say, hey, why do we have all this stuff with Dana when we didn't even get to see her boobs? And I'm just thinking, really? Really? Shut up. Like, the actress is only 18 or 19, and the character is, what, 15 or 16? Yeah. Talk about a little exploitative. That makes me so angry. Just, you know, because there's always one character on a dramatic television show, and it's always a a female character who's hated. Breaking Bad, it was Skylar. Mad Men, it was Betty. And I honestly feel like sexism plays into it, because... Dana's not Carrier Brody. Dana is a female character dealing with angsty issues, just like Skylar and Betty did as well. I feel like people get very sexist and very frustrated and very mean when it comes to a female character learning to cope with the world around her and how the people that are important to her in her life are ultimately either destroying her or determining how her life will play out. Right. Overall, I'm still on board with the Zayna subplot, and Charlie, Chris got a few lines this episode. He did. He's actually kind of supportive of his sister, and he he gets it, you know? He's basically just telling Jessica, leave her alone. Let her live her life and sort out her her own issues. Like, you don't have to be a watchdog over her all the time. Just leave her alone. And I was like, okay, Chris, you understand. You're a good brother. Yeah, and even though it was just, it was uh, it was only a few lines, it, at least he said something, because there have been so many episodes where Chris is just standing there silent, watching everything deteriorate, and he doesn't know what to do. But now that he's getting older, I feel like the writers acknowledge the fact that they're like, hey, we can't just make Chris um, mute. It's not like we can turn Chris into a mime here. 
he seems like the most well-adjusted person. Like, he doesn't really seem to care about everything that is happening around him. You know, it's, his yeah. dad might be a terrorist. His sister tried to kill herself. He just seems perfectly happy and content. Like, all right, just let's let's move on and let people live their lives. He's probably just doing a lot of karate, man. I mean, <laughs> physical <laughs> exercise helps uh, when it comes to depression. So maybe he's just taking a lot of karate lessons and tuning everything out. I don't know. Maybe studying martial arts just taught him how to remain calm and collected and channel all of that chi and all that energy to healthy places. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the uh, people dealing with a bunch of crazy psychological issues, I think Dana's probably the healthiest at this point. But in terms of just characters in general, Chris, he's the healthiest one of all. He, he should be the role model for everybody. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what if this whole series just ends up with this huge climactic showdown between like every character against each other and Chris just gets in the middle and it's like, stop, <laughs> let's talk this out. <laughs> just live your life. Okay. Just leave each other alone. Let's all go be happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just comes out with an acoustic guitar and just starts playing the Beatles and everyone's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. That would be great if, like, as Chris gets older, he's, he's like, a hippie who smokes a lot of pot and he grows his hair out really long and he's just, like, all <laughs> into... I don't know. It would be interesting, though, if... What if Brody comes back and then Dana's not going to take any more of Brody's manipulation and then... But Chris still could fall for it i don't know maybe that's a possibility i i maybe it's not like at the same time it's not like brody can just go back into his house and be like surprise because they'll be calling the cops in a heartbeat so it's not like he can do that right away but you know that they're i i pretty sure they're gonna get brody to interact with his family at some point this season at least i hope so do you really think that dana has completely rejected her father though because I feel like they had an understanding. They had a deeper connection to a certain extent than, than he has with Chris. He admitted to Dana a lot of what he had done or he had thought about doing. And at the end of this episode, she goes out to the garage and pulls out his prayer rug and seems to be trying to understand who her father was. I, I think it might be premature to say that Dana has completely given up on her dad. I think there's a part of her that still believes he's innocent. Oh, yeah. I don't think that um, Dana's completely given up on her dad. I think that if she interacts with him again, though, she's going to be really scared and defensive in some ways. That scene at the end with um, her finding his red carpet was probably my favorite scene of the entire episode because there's no dialogue it's just really, it's just Dana lying down on the carpet and it's really well shot and it conveys all of the emotional confusion that she's going through. And, and you can tell that she's still, you know, it, it's her father. Of course, she's still going to have feelings for him, no matter how horrible his actions are. He's still a significant part of her life. And I feel like she's trying to understand him. And at the same time, she is kind of blaming him simultaneously for why it, she led to uh, attempt suicide. I think that she does blame herself for that partially, but I feel like part of her is really angry with her father for causing her to feel this way. And at the same time, she's trying to not completely brush him off. She's trying to at least understand what drove him to do this. All right. Is there anything else that you have to say about this episode of Homeland? No, I, I yeah, that pretty much covers it. 
Yeah, I don't have uh, a whole lot else that I want to say either. I, I like this episode. I like the way the season is going. It's progressing a lot more slowly than season two did, but I'm, I'm fine with that. And yeah, I can't wait to see what happens next. It's so weird, Charlie, to be talking about a show with you where we're not spending the whole episode complaining. Doesn't it feel good? <laughs> I think this does. could be good for both of us. And one thing I will, one other thing I will say about this is that I have no idea where the season could go. And I said that about season eight of Dexter, but I meant that in a bad way because I was just like, this show's just so crazy and stupid that I don't know where it can go and I don't care. Here, the unpredictability of this season, I find to be really fascinating because I have no idea what's going to happen, where Brody is, what he's going to do, how he's going to play a part in any of this right now. He could come out and tell the truth, but will anyone believe him? Yeah, I, I, it's just strange because now whenever I finish watching an episode of Homeland, I'm, I'll be like, oh, I like that. Should I like that? Am I? What am I missing here? <laughs> Why am I not filled with rage? <laughs> Why do I not hate Dana like everybody else seems to hate Dana? What's wrong with me? Has Dexter ruined me? <laughs> we could probably be doing a podcast on a season of Two and a Half Men, and we'd probably be like giving it nothing but uh, praise because season eight of Dexter was that horrific. Let's not go too far, Charlie. Well, that will wrap it up for this episode of The Briefing Room. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at briefingroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. Please subscribe to us through iTunes and leave us a review. That would be a really big help. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of Homeland, whether you hate Dana or whether you agree with us and, and think that that hatred is largely uh, misguided. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our latest podcast, all about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. Charlie, where can people find you online? Well, you can listen to me and Andrew uh, dissect the eighth and final season of Dexter on Film Geek Radio if you go under the Avenging Angels section. And you can also find the articles that I've written for your magazine, Emerson, at Issue. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash your mag Emerson. And you can uh, follow me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. You can find some of my writing at Pathios.com and MovieMezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message to let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back, and we can keep talking about Homeland. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And I want to be alive, and the reason for that is Leo DiCaprio. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!